Welcome to Keep Your Pecker Up Podcast. This is Debbie Mann. And my guest today is Allison Scott. Hi, Allison. Hi, Deb. Welcome to my podcast. And again, thank you so much for doing this with me. I'm pretty excited to talk to you about this. Yeah, me too. Good. So like many of the other people I've talked to, we met on our our Dragonflyers dragon boat and um, have have shared a um, few tears and laughter and some frustrations <laughs> in the boat. <laughs> that, that, that team has been one of the best things that's ever happened to me. It's like, you're right. It's kind of been everything, hasn't it? It yeah. has been. It really has been. So, yeah. and as many people have heard, this is a breast cancer survivor team of 20 women and a steer and a coach and a drummer. So, yeah, let's, since we talked, we're, we're on that subject, let's talk about the Dragon Boat and how you got involved, because aren't, if I remember correctly, are you not one of the the founders of the Dragon Flyers? I came in, not in the first year, I don't okay. know if it was their second year, so there were a whole bunch of people ahead of me, so Diane was the first person that actually invited me. Okay. So this is what's hilarious, because I'm not really enough. And after my breast cancer diagnosis, I had gone to WellFit and WellFit at U of W participating weekly. And Diane wasn't in cohort. I was in a cohort with a a number of other team members. We were actually at a potluck in a summer and Diane sat down beside me and, and, you know, you introduced yourselves and she'd gone back to work. So she wasn't attending WellFit. And then she said, so you had breast cancer. And I said, yep. And that was the criteria. She didn't care if I could paddle. She didn't care if I'd ever been in a boat. She didn't care if I could swim. Basically wanted to know my name and if I was a breast cancer survivor. And if I was, she wanted to tell me I need to join this team. So I said, I don't even know. I said, what is dragon boating? And she said, oh, you'll love it. And so I laughed because that's the first time I've ever been automatically picked for a team with no athletic ability. Only a diagnosis of cancer, which you'd usually have most people running for the hills, right? Yes. No, not according to Diane, I was in. So, you know, that was the benefit of the diagnosis that put you in an in-group. Um, <laughs> it was kind of funny. But I was really, um, it was actually very cool because she said, come out and try it. And I didn't know how to do it. I get seasick standing on a dock. I wasn't sure I'd even be able to go on a boat. But I just really liked the idea of being physically active with this group of women. And so I joined and I stayed and that's kind of how it all started. So I think they'd have been a year or two. I think they'd had two seasons, but they didn't quite have a full boat. And my job was to, you know, take up a seat in the boat so the boat could go out. And and that was it. That was also my skill level, right? Excellent. Well, since you've joined, so you've been in the boat how long? Was probably four years now four seasons. So in 2013, I had breast pain that was not explained by anything. And I'd had a mother that had died of breast cancer. Mm -hmm. And I remember when she was ill, she had complained about a persistent pain that the doctor had said to her, breast cancer isn't painful. You don't have to worry about that. And she minimized it. And I think they minimized it because of the pain that was presenting. And it turned out that she did have breast cancer in that breast and she subsequently died of breast cancer. And she died six months to the day after being declared cancer free. It had metastasized. So 
But when I look back at that, I remember my mother always saying to me, don't ever ignore breast pain and don't let anybody tell you everything's okay. If you feel it's not, trust your own body. So when I had breast pain, of course, that's up forefront. I go through all of the medical tests. Everything is clear. So then my trainer who's working out with me says maybe it's the size of my breasts and the fact that um, the weight of them while I'm working out may be causing difficulty. So she said, why don't, have you ever thought of a breast reduction? And I said, I have periodically. And she said, well, why don't you pursue that? That might help. So I did. I got a referral to a plastic surgeon. The plastic surgeon was terrific. He had a huge waiting list. And then fate kind of intervened. And what happened is, because he's a plastic surgeon in the nature of his business, and because it was winter, a lot of his clients are snowbirds and we're all traveling away. So he had an opening pop up in the middle of February in his schedule. And he said, if you want to do the breast reduction, I can do it now. So that advanced that surgery by about six to 12 months. I came off a waiting list and was able to go straight into surgery. And it was in the pathology report after the breast reduction that they found my cancer. And it turned out it was HER2 positive breast cancer, which meant that it would have spread very quickly without any intervention. It had been growing fairly quickly. So where was it in your breast? Like after you had the reduction, obviously they have to send everything in for pathology, right? But you didn't feel any lumps or anything? I had very large breasts. So I had a lifetime of having extra mammogram checks and lots of ultrasound mapping because I had cysts. And I think I had fibrous cysts removed about three or four different times in my lifetime before this. So you get a little complacent about the types of lumps you have. But the other thing they tell you is people that have fibrous breasts tend not to develop breast cancer. So you kind of learn and you become familiar and you know where your lumps are. And you know, this lump, the lump that I had during the, um, that was found in the pathology report, wasn't going to be big enough for them to detect it. I think it was under two and a half centimeters. And because I had such large breasts with lots of lumps, it was, there was no way I would have known what was cancerous and what wasn't, which was why we'd done all the ultrasounds and all the mammograms. So, so I kept a pretty close watch on my ultrasounds and mammograms. And when they'd done the breast surgery, there was two things that showed up. I had the uh, DCIS, I think, the interductal. So I had, I had like precancerous stuff in my pathology. And I also had this lump. And they couldn't tell me where the lump came from, what part of my breast it came from, where it was, because it was, you know, they got it in a dissection of tissue they'd removed. So basically they knew it was left breast, right breast tissue, and then they could do the analysis of each breast separately, but you had no location. So you couldn't check the margins of the tumor. You couldn't see where it was. If there were any other ones, there was nothing that you could really see there. So that's what I call my first happy gift was my trainer saying, think of breast. The second happy gift was meeting the plastic surgeon who said that I would be a candidate and that he could do it. And then he had an opening, which brought forward everything, which gave me an early diagnosis. And then I went through a series of testing like they do uh, once you're diagnosed. So there were further mammograms and further testing. And during one of those, 
when they compared it to my original mammogram that had happened nine months before my breast surgery, the cancer was actually in that mammogram. <gasps> it had not been detected. So I received a letter from the breast cancer folks that you get. Every, you know how you get the letter every year reminding you to go get your test. I'd received a letter from them saying that my test was negative and I just had to schedule another exam in another year. So when I received the all clear in my mammogram, the doctor had looked and said, no, your mammogram's clear, your x-rays are clear. Everything was clear for me, but I still had that pain and I still felt something was wrong. And that's when I talked to my trainer and that's when I saw the surgeon. Subsequently looking back, the letter I received was in error. I'd actually had breast cancer that was there that showed up in the mammogram but that wasn't reported um to me oh my god yeah so the the lesson learned in that again for me and i think it really helped me through my treatment because that happened right at the beginning of my diagnosis when the ultrasound technician said oh look at this mammogram you can see all the nasty cells and in this one you can see after your breast reduction that they're all spread out and they're um, you can see the difference between pre-surgery and post-surgery breasts. She said, isn't that fascinating? And I said, what do you mean all the nasty cells? So then I requested that original report. Then I took some time to go through that report with my surgeon who was fabulous and talked about how, you know, sometimes mistakes are made. I wasn't looking to blame anybody, but what I was looking at is how do you prevent this from happening to somebody else? But what it also taught me was to be a good advocate for yourself. So I requested a copy of that report and the lesson learned was at every procedure after that, I would ask for the actual report, not a note or a confirmation by telephone saying everything was okay. And that kind of helped me because, you know, up until this point, I'd been totally Canadian about any medical appointments. So when someone said something to you, you said, yes, thank you that's great. And you don't have to worry about it. You were polite. You didn't stir the waters because you figured the experts knew. Then you realize everybody's human. Mistakes are going to be made. And so when I started requesting reports, my oncologist said to me one day, why are you doing this? She said, I'm seeing you. I'm going through it. And every time you request a report, it takes time for my staff and because they have to go do the photocopying. And so she was basically saying, why don't you trust me? And, and when I said to her, I completely trust you. However, I need the reports in my hands so that I can verify and know what's going on for me. And I also said if I didn't understand, then I could review the material, I could research it, and I could come back to her with questions. But it was my information, and I just wanted to make sure that nothing got missed. And it was kind of the beginning of that advocacy for me to make sure that not to be critical of the people that were providing care, but to make sure that I understood that I was getting accurate information and that things weren't going to be missed. And it also helped me review information so that I could stay on track because I did a lot of coping by research. Part of how I coped by my illness was to understand what's going on now, what can happen, what are the risks, and what are, what are my odds. And I needed to know that from an evidence-informed point of view because part of what I needed to manage was how I helped explain this to my kids and how mm. I could help alleviate their anxiety around the illness and my own anxiety as well. So if I knew what type of cancer I had and what the treatment protocols were, were 
what stage I was actually at on that journey, given other cancer patients, what worked for them, then I could translate to my kids. This is what I've got, and this is what we're going to do about it. This is what our journey looks like. This is what could happen to me on a bad day. This is what could happen to me. You know, these are, this is the prognosis. Now I look back at some of those articles and I don't understand them now. And I'm thinking, how did I do it then? So it might've just been kidding myself, but, but you know, when you're in it and it's important to you, I guess you find a way through it. So did you start chemo right away? Because you just had a breast reduction, found cancer. And so did you get right into the whole treatment, right? They, they just, they had to change the treatment protocol a little bit because of the way the cancer was found. So instead of finding a lump and going through all the investigative tests and then, you know, removing that and like having surgery and then treatment, because I just had surgery, they basically said, we know it was there and we know what it is and we know how aggressive it is. So we need to do systemic chemotherapy. Like we don't know how far or where it's gone. We don't know what your margins look like because we couldn't, you know, we couldn't see the site. You know, there's a lot more science to that, but Basically, they said chemo now, surgery later. And so I started within six weeks, I think, of the diagnosis, I'd started chemo. And so I I started chemo in May. So I had the surgery in March, got the diagnosis in April, started my chemotherapy in May right away, as soon as they could get me in, and did 18 weeks of chemotherapy and then had a couple of weeks off and then we we did a bilateral mastectomy we took both breasts and then the question for me was if they had known how far it had progressed before they'd started treatment i may have had radiation so they had a big debate over whether or not they should radiate and in the end we opted not to do it um because it looked like the uh, chemotherapy had done its job the other thing when they went in to do the bilateral mastectomy is, is he was going to try a lymph node biopsy. But because the lymph nodes had been disrupted during the breast reduction and the other surgeries, you know, everything had been messed around. Basically, they weren't sure that they could actually do that procedure. But it turns out the procedure was successful. They were able to take, I think, nine lymph nodes and test them, and they were all negative. So we opted to do radiation. And then I did Herceptin because HER2 breast cancer, the treatment, it wasn't an estrogen-based cancer. So that the treatment for that cancer was Herceptin for a year. So I stayed on Herceptin after my breast surgery in September until the following, like once every three weeks for basically until a year. Do you remember what kind of chemo you had? I had chemo for 18 weeks. I had chemo once every three weeks of three different chemo drugs. And then in the in-between weeks, weekly for the 18 weeks, I had Herceptin. Okay. Um, so I had a port. It was all intravenous. And then once the 18 weeks of chemo finished, I went to the once every three weeks schedule. We readjusted our household for me to do that. And, you know, my kids were, uh, my one son moved home actually when I was diagnosed and um, was kind of able to, provide lots of emotional support and just, you know, my sister came and helped with physical care during surgery. But basically for that year, it was Mark and I hunkering down to a medical regime that came first before anything else. 
yeah. and, and then our time together and our time together with our family, our circle got really closed for a while. It was totally um, people in our inner circle that, because you reprioritize everything when you're going through that level of intense treatment. And for us, um, having the people that we cared about close to us was really important. So, so we did that. Our circle kind of narrowed for a while. And then once I started to get better and once they said I was cured and they kicked me out and I didn't like that, I, I kept <laughs> wanting to go back as much as it was an intrusion. I thought, I like the care that you're giving me. I know you're looking after me and I don't want to be out there on my own because I don't really trust this isn't going to be, this isn't going to come back. And then they reassuringly said, oh, if it comes back, it'll be a completely different kind of cancer. It'll go to your brain or your liver or your bones, right? So it's like, okay, never mind. I'll take this. <laughs> I'll leave. I'll just leave with this. That's fine. Thank you very much. <laughs> then my circle got bigger. Like after that was when I kind of, you know, opened things back up again. And But the people that stayed in the inner circle changed. My pre-cancer friends was a broad group of friends. My post-cancer friends that inner circle became my welfare friends my dragon boat friends and my childhood friends for me my priorities changed and my professional outlook changed how i wanted to spend my time changed and that also changed who i was with and all for the good like i still love my friends and they're still there but i think the new friends that i got or what I needed at the time and what I still need, right? So, mm -hmm. I mean, don't you find that about the, we started talking about that, about that group. And I, for me, that's how, that, that's how they stay in my life is. Yeah. My, my perspective's different now. I don't, don't you find, Deb, that with COVID, having had that experience where you had to be so vigilant about your care before actually help, like, I think we shifted pretty quickly into, social distancing, safe sanitation and hand washing and clean, like everything, all the COVID protocols, we just kind of pre-empted back into our old routine protocols, right? And so in some ways, the adjustment for COVID on that physical distancing, social distancing health protocol, that was almost like going back. The difference with COVID though is I felt with cancer when you're at that chemo suite with those nurses and the other folks that you see on your regular treatment days you weren't isolated so so the weird thing about this pandemic is it's actually way more isolating than the cancer journey was yes even though the physical changes that we've had to make have actually been easier i never realized i never associated it with that protocol but you're right it was not a big shift for me the only shift was wearing a mask but even then i had you know a couple of masks here from my from my treatments in case you know i went in and i you know had to go to er emergency the downside though is having to do all of those treatments on your own walking into that hospital on your own there's you yeah. can't have anybody with you yeah, that i I find that would be hard. Yeah, I think that's I think that's a really good point because I always had, you know, I gave my friends stuff to do. So I have one friend that would drive me to certain types of treatments. I'd other, you know, we saved the big medical appointments for Mark. Right. But you're right. I was never alone during that. Yeah. And I can't imagine going through that where you didn't have that physical closeness and somebody with you. 
it's one so one of the things i discovered it's one thing for you for me and you as the ones who have been given the news and have to deal with it because we've got a checklist we've got a to-do list we've got yeah. we we know what we have to do for those who are supporting us or our spouses they're helpless right it's like ah oh, you know they can't fix it how was mark through it all i think mark really wanted to fix it <laughs> So, and he got very, very protective very quickly. And the other thing that had helped me though, was one of the guys that I worked with had shared with me about six months before my diagnosis that his, his wife had been diagnosed. When I was diagnosed, I called him right away at work. He was one of the first people I called. And I said, um, this is what's going on for us. And so he met with Mark. And he was able to give Mark a, a bit of a shared perspective. Sorry, Deb. That's okay. Dogs are included. Cardi <laughs> was a big part of my journey, right? He was. Uh, he used to sit on my bed every day and just. My goal every day when I was on chemo was to walk Charlie. And some days we could only walk to the mailbox and back, but that was my goal was to get out every day and to get out with him, and that kind of kept my activity up. So. You know, the barking and the yapping sometimes comes with Charlie. So. <laughs> Thank God for our pets, right? I mean. Uh, he knew I wasn't well. He just stayed with me. He was great. But for Mark, Mark was, um, there were a couple of people that we connected with that had been through it. And I think that helped Mark. The other thing was I had a, an identical twin. So, and she lived out of province. So Mark and her and her would talk an awful lot about how things were going and what they were doing. and. You know, that the impact, I think, is probably more long-lasting on your family. That there are things that, you know, we can take what we have in our journey and kind of control the elements of it at the time. Maybe I'm just kidding myself. But at the time, I felt like I took control over what I could and then left mm -hmm. the rest to other people. But for Mark, it was, it's never quite over, right? So so for for him, it was you know, this could come at you sideways and then you got to kind of have to shift all your focus again. Uh, but if it came the first time, what if it comes, you know, what if something else comes, right? So, so for him, if I'm ever sick, he's like, when we got back from Italy and I got that infection and they thought it was my heart for about almost a year, we thought that maybe the Herceptin had caused permanent heart damage because I was having a lot of issues. And so all that protectiveness and all that anxiety and all that worry came back full force for him. So, and it got to the point that when I got better, because we think it was maybe some sort of lung infection, we don't really know what it was. That right. My heart don't really have a cause, but it went away, thankfully. Um, but the worry didn't go away from Mark, you know? So mm -hmm. if I would walk up the stairs or I'd want to get in a boat now, you know, I'd go to practice and I would try to exert myself in practice. He's like, don't do too much. Don't do too much. Like, don't, don't put it at risk. So I, I think it has a huge impact on the people around you. So, and when you're ready to kind of say, okay, I'm good now, you can stop worrying. That's, you know, that's not going to happen for him. He says, right. I'm, he's going to worry as much as he needs to worry. And it's because, you know, they, they don't, they had no control. They were totally along for the ride. And sometimes I'll look back and I'll, you know, someone will share something that happened. I don't know if you find this. But if you've got like your sister now currently going through things or other friends, I would say, did that happen to me? And I would turn around, I'd look at Mark and I'd say, 
did that happen to me? Because I have no memory of it. I've either pushed it down or was too sick or, you know, the, the chemo fog or the pregnancy memory yeah, yeah. help you get through the trauma, you forget it. But he's never forgotten it. He would say, oh, yeah, that, ex that absolutely happened to you. Or, no, you didn't quite have it that way. You had it this way. But he's kind of become my memory test for that because he's kept it all. And there are parts of it I've lost. You know, yeah. it, and it's probably because your brain and your body can only take so much at once. I've never given birth. I just wonder if it's kind of like that. There's certain aspects of giving birth that you don't remember, right? Well, yeah. And I kind of, you know, it, for me at the end of the chemo, when the hemoglobin count went down and your legs got really heavy, and for me, my legs got heavy and swollen and I, I couldn't climb stairs without running out of breath. I had completely forgotten about that as a symptom until I'd had the heart issue after we went mm. through the international regatta in Italy and I get home and whatever infection I had that impacted my heart at the time when they were investigating it, that maybe as it was a side effect of Herceptin, I walked up the stairs. I couldn't get up to the top of the stairs because I'd be breathless. And it's like, oh, I remember this, but I had completely forgotten it in between. And that's what, you know, that's the kind of thing when they talk about pregnancy amnesia because people would only give birth once <laughs> they remembered all those things and it kind of is true for cancer too right <laughs> cancer you think oh yeah that's right I can't I don't need to carry all that with me because that sucked so yeah and here yes. it is again it still sucks yeah. <laughs> yeah. but thankfully it went away in between so and it's gone away again so that's good yeah great so let's let's talk a little bit about the international regatta because that was just such a great experience. We had yeah, gone. Well, highlight of my life, one of them. Yep. Yeah. yeah. Why don't you talk about it a little bit? 2018. And so I was four years in. But the coolest thing about that, when I started dragon boating, I remember Emily talking about the opportunity to go to an international regatta and her experience. She'd had an experience being with a, a group of breast cancer survivors in dragon boating and she mentioned this regatta to us and we all thought okay that would be great part of the attraction for me at the time was Italy being such a romantic location and being with the team and so you, you kind of get the best of both worlds the team is going to go to a regatta together it's going to be something a little bit different than Stratford and Woodstock you know you get in your car you go you come home and we were planning this big trip with all the big fundraising and you know intellectually I think I'd looked at it as it was going to be a great holiday, great big cultural experience with all my friends. What I had been totally unprepared for until we got there was the, that mess of being all of those cancer survivors in one place at the same time. So everywhere you looked, you were with a fellow cancer survivor. That was overwhelming to me. The parade, I think, was the thing that personified that the most. And I still yeah. can't, I can't go back and look at those videos without bawling my eyes out. I Me cry too. every time I see them. It's the most, it's a really intense emotional response in a really good way for something that you think could be a really sad thing when you think of all these thousands of women and all of us are, have had breast cancer, but we've all survived breast cancer. When we did that parade, that was kind of when the, the accumulation, the accumulation of everybody in the same place was overwhelming to me. Um, and then it was really inspiring because it was like every single one of those women has said, damn it, you're not, you haven't got the best of me. I'm still here. 
And it also honored people that couldn't go with us because they were still struggling with cancer. Everybody knows somebody who's had cancer that hasn't survived. So there's that element of it that I think at that regatta just accentuated how lucky all of us were Mm -hmm. and how inspirational it was for us to be together. And, you know, all of the efforts of the team came together as well. So what I think happened for our team and for me on that team is I was inspired by everybody I was with, even though they were my friends and I'd been with them a long time. And even though we kind of hacked around at dragon boating, all of a sudden we got really competitive. (laughs) And for the first time ever, we were competing with our equals because I find in all the other local regattas, you know, we'd had a little breast cancer race and with some teams that were really competitive. And then you were mixed in with all of the other boats. So you never really had a sense of how good you were or where you were at as a team because, you know, when you're up against firefighters and the police association or the university teams, of course we're not going to fare well. Right. But when we were all of a sudden in a group of women like us with the same issues and varying levels of training and expertise, for sure, you still had those competitive teams. But on the whole, I thought we did pretty damn good. So I think so, yeah. too. For our first <laughs> international regatta, absolutely. So we had our best times. We got we we kind of got a sense of that we could be good in relation to the people we were with. Yeah. And I think that really also inspired the team. So when I look back at that, that that's what sticks out for me is how much the team gelled on that trip and how much it came together around dragon boating and wanting to be better at it, not mm-hmm. just the trip to Italy. Um although Italy was amazing. And then the other part of it was just being part of this very large community that you know you can tap into. Like, to see all those women and to, it's indescribable, actually. I, I still don't have the words to, to talk about what that felt like. Yeah, I remember when we were doing the march through the streets, I remember being so amazed that all of the people that were waving in the crowds that were kind of flanking us as we went down this great big tunnel, it felt like with the narrow streets, uh, kind of like almost like a Spanish bull run or something. <laughs> Everybody's on the side and here we come. And as we were all going through and people were cheering and they were all waving flags, there were, there was a ton of people waving Canadian flags. Yes. And I thought, Oh my God, look at all these Canadians. They've come to support us. And the pride was overwhelming. It wasn't until I got to the end of the parade that I realized there had been a team ahead of us handing out free Canadian flags. (laughs) These were people from all over the world just taking the free flag they were giving and waving it. (laughs) I I felt so proud to be Canadian and I was like, look at all these flags and look at these people are all here for us. That was the other part of it is they're all here for us. Um, And that kind of was like a, it was just a huge symbol, right? So I mean, really, the, really the irony is. is I don't think any of them were from Canada at all. It was, I think people were inspired by what we were doing, but I think we were became inspired by that experience as well, right? I agree. I agree. And unfortunately, we won't be going. We don't even know if the next regard is going to happen or not, but we chose as a team not to go. Yeah, I I got a bulletin that, you know, they're still advertising New Zealand and New Zealand is still one of the safest countries in the world with COVID. The risk to me is the, well, 
the getting there and the getting back and you don't know what's coming in a second wave. But the other thing COVID did is it reshifted my priorities again, just like my cancer did to kind of refocus on my family as well. Although I really, really miss not being in the boat right now. That's it's really, um, and I really miss, I can't believe how quickly my motivation to stay fit has fallen off the wayside because <laughs> I don't have the same incentive and you know it's kind of self-imposed but when you're doing something with your team you have this large team accountability my personal accountability sucks right now (laughs) (laughs) yeah me too I don't want to let go of this team I don't want to let go of the spirit that we that we have developed together and you know the humor humor has gotten me through a lot and uh (laughs) And that's why I called this the Keep Your Pecker Up podcast. (laughs) (laughs) So any other words of wisdom about your journey for anyone that's listening, Allison? No, there's no real wisdom. It's just faith. And I I think that's something that stays with me. And to me, it's faith for all the meanings of the word. It's, It's faith in a higher power, but it's faith in knowing it's going to be okay no matter what. Like, and I know it's not always okay and it's not always okay for some people, but I felt like for me, if I hung on to that thought, faith in the people that were providing care, faith in your family, faith in the fact that somebody was looking over me, even though I may not understood of what was going on. And I, that I put that word hope right beside that, right? Because we tried to stay as positive as we could you know, I learned as much as I could, but I think, I think keeping that positive outlook really does shape your outcomes as well. And those aren't the scientific things. Those are the emotional things you know, all the physical yeah. touch, all the inspiration we get from each other. Those were all the things that came out of that for me that I, when I forget them, I don't do well. When I keep them in the forefront, I think I'm a better person and I feel better. And Maybe I, if I, maybe if I say I have faith in exercise, it'll just come back. What do you think? <laughs> well, thanks for doing this with me, Allison. I really appreciate it. And yeah, I'm so um, sorry. Charlie is now lying beside me, totally asleep. Yeah, that's okay. He did go through the journey with you, so you know yeah, he, yeah. he was just making sure he wasn't left out. That's what it was. <laughs> Okay. Well, it was fun. It's, you took me back to things I hadn't thought about for a long time. So thanks for that. Oh, you're welcome. And yeah. to those of you listening, thank you for listening to the Keep Your Pecker podcast and <laughs> uh, subscribe to find out when the next ones are coming up. Thanks everyone very much. Bye. Bye.